Mexico and Chile have requested the International Criminal Court investigate Israel for committing war crimes against civilians in Gaza as outrage grows over Israel's 15-week assault on the besieged territory, which has killed nearly 25,000 Palestinians, over 10,000 of them children. On Thursday, the European Union Parliament passed a resolution calling for a Gaza ceasefire and the condition that all hostages be released and Hamas dismantled. This comes as Gaza enters its eighth day under a near-complete communications blackout, the longest blackout to date. Israel's continuing to attack areas across the Gaza Strip. This is a Palestinian mother in Khan Yunus, after learning her son had been killed in an Israeli strike. I'm hurting like a burning blaze. I told my husband, let's pray for Abdullah. He will come back. But it was my last goodbye for him. May God have mercy on his soul. They took my heart from me. I was waiting for my son, but he didn't come back. I hadn't slept for three nights praying for him. They told me he's in the European hospital, and I was praying that it wouldn't be true. In news from Israel, police have arrested seven people after they blocked a major highway in Tel Aviv during a protest calling for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to reach an agreement that would secure the release of the remaining 132 hostages held in Gaza. Meanwhile, Netanyahu has publicly rejected calls by the Biden administration for the future establishment of a Palestinian state. He called for Israel to be in control of the region, from the river to the sea. How can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you know that you're self-censoring? I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. You don't go to poor countries to make money. I mean, the Philippines are rich. Brazil is rich. Mexico is rich. Chile is rich. Only the people are poor. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. You got a lot of killers. Why you think our country's so innocent? Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. You're not. You're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem. But there's billions to be made there, to be carved out and be taken. There's been billions for 400 years. The capitalist European and North American powers have carved out and taken timber, the flax, the hemp, the cocoa, the rum, the tin, the copper, the iron, the rubber, the bauxite, the slave, and the cheap labor. These countries are not underdeveloped, they're overexploited. Let us be together and recognize another world is possible if we come together to understand the power we've got and achieve that decent, better society where everyone matters. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. We are the ones that are suffering and the corporations that you're talking about, the businesses that you're talking about, and the warehouses that you're talking about. So that's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that. He's deflected from the actual argument at hand. What I try and do is be fair about Trump. What you do is be relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party because I'm literally a communist.
Um, so just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's not the, it's not the other way around. And as the mole of history returns to the surface once more, we're here. I'm Tom. And I'm Fred. And you're listening to The Tunnels, a podcast by The Mole, which you can support at themoleworld.com forward slash support. I feel like I say that like almost exactly the same every time. It's like I just paste it in each time. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you've got you've got your patter now. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 settling in. So this week we're talking about the ongoing genocide that's been taking place in Gaza since October the seventh of last year, twenty twenty three, and which we did our best to lay out some of the context or as much of the context as we we could at the time in part one of this two part episode. And on that subject, there were a couple of things that we were conscious of after pressing stop on the recording that we we sort of realised we hadn't. Um, covered that we should have. So we're going to start the episode by sweeping through those and then move as quickly as we can on to what's been happening over the last few months because there's a lot to cover and talk about. So we were going to start by talking about the March return in 2018 uh, where thousands of Palestinians marched um, peacefully up to the wall that separates them from Israel and were met with sniper fire and tear gas and all sorts of uh, horrific events, despite the protest being peaceful. We did link to the documentary by Abby Martin and Empire Files in part one, which we'll also link to in this episode, which is an amazing piece of work that we highly recommend people watch to get an idea of what was happening. Are there any specific things that are worth touching on i mean one that comes to mind immediately is the uh well not just innocent civilians being shot at which we're becoming very familiar with and also press being shot at which we're um very familiar with but also the the quote that was in the documentary about the poet i think who organized the the march and his sort of quote around birds flying freely um as as they're watching and and wishing they had that freedom of movement Anything else that you sort of thought we should touch on, Fred? Um, well, I think we thought it was important to mention because it's a good example of a, a different kind of tactic that was tried in recent history um, that, that was nonviolent, as you say, um, that a lot of um, people on the Israeli side and the kind of media um, back and forth say that like Gaza could be free if only the people were resisting in ways that were more acceptable. Uh, and less violent um so that's a good example of like a mass protest kind of going through civil society that was non-violent based explicitly around the kind of border regime and separation that was met with indiscriminate violence from the zionist entity so and it's only a few years ago so it's quite important to just touch on i think yeah definitely definitely and I, I mean, there's there's so much that can be said about it. And as I say, we'll link to some sources that do that. Um, but, but but for the purpose of this episode, I think we're going to have to move quite quickly on and, and recommend that people uh, look at those sources themselves. And another thing we wanted to touch on today was the, the context of there being natural gas fields in Gaza. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, off the coast, there's quite extensive natural gas access on the sea, which could be tapped by Western powers. Um, but is currently in like kind of Gazan sea territory. So it's not like, I mean, I think the conspiracy side is that it's all about that kind of thing. But I think it's worth recognizing as another another kind of material incentive for direct control 
to be taken but not like the driving factor or anything but uh, it's important context also yeah yeah it's the sort of context that as soon as you hear um that oil has been discovered or that yeah there's energy of, of any kind of nature um in a particular region then you sort of start to wait and see what instability is going to happen next so as you say it's not the source of the instability but it's um it's a definite factor to bear in mind as we look at the different incentives that exist for the different parties sort of involved i mean that potentially plays a, a larger factor for as you say other western powers whereas i suppose the incentives that we should also be um uh, mindful of more locally and that we didn't talk much about last time was the controversy surrounding netanyahu and his trials that he's currently facing domestically and which he's sort of using the war to to put off facing uh to the fullest extent uh yeah so i think there's a couple of things there in terms of there's the corruption charges that he faces multiple trials with um, and there's also like, a large part of the context before this started recently was the kind of constitutional reforms that he was trying to change how much power the prime minister president kind of uh, section of the state had. And they were trying to minimize the power of the courts and the kind of jurisdictional elements to overturn things. And there were huge mobilizations against that over the last couple of years. And since October 7th, Netanyahu's popularity domestically has gone down hugely and is in, I think, almost single figures through polling, a large amount of which has been explained by the security failure, as seen by the Israelis, that allowed October 7th attack to happen, as well as a not satisfactorily prioritising trying to save civilians that were taken uh, hostages. But there's this kind of friction there because he can see that expanding and continuing the war can keep him in power can be a kind of protective to his political mission but at the same time as well as being extremely unpopular the barrage itself i think is over 70 percent domestically from polling think that the onslaught isn't going far enough so there's a there's a mass mobilization for increased violence but a complete collapse in the support for netanyahu as a figure so this kind of tension is creating a lot of political instability also yeah 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 i mean so yeah he's currently on trial for corruption and um would be facing indictment when they finally stop this genocide and has explicitly said that it's key to his political survival the expansion especially into new areas which we'll come on to later in the episode he's sort of spoken of how that is is critical to him surviving so it's it's definitely key to understand these different incentives as we move into talking about what they've led to so yeah with those kind of incentives which will come on to the international incentives which relate to uh, israel more existentially we didn't fully go into last time the rise of netanyahu himself as a political figure within israel and the coalition which is now in power we did mention a kind of drift to the right of um, israeli politics over time after the collapse of labor zionism um, and these other forces which are now practically non-existent so Netanyahu himself, I mean, he's called like the Israeli Trump, which is kind of the Western go-to comparison, but it can be helpful if you take the right kind of things from it. But he's very controversial, mired in allegations, like we say. The coalition that he's had to build, because he's constantly been in and out of power, but he's been the most consistent, high-up political figure of the last like decade or so. He's had to empower these far-right forces, which we did talk about very briefly last time. But his Likud party is in power along with terrorists, well, <laughs> ex-terrorists, I suppose, under Israel's own laws and supported 
kind of Zionist terrorism. And so he's now in power, but it's a very shaky kind of power, as we were talking about. Yeah. And when you're talking about the terrorists, are you talking about Itmar Ben-Gavir being his Minister of National Security as an example of that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who was turned down by the IDF for being too extreme um, and now has his own militia. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's also the one that's handing out guns to settlers, isn't he? Sort of um, as a part of a campaign to, I guess, wash the violence somewhat, give the, the it to to settlers that are killing Palestinians in the West Bank, and then uh, sort of the IDF's role is to then defend them. Yeah, the apartheid state in terms of law and uh, prosecution is massively biased in favour of Zionist uh, actors, and so they don't really get prosecuted, and yeah. uh, the territories expand. Yeah, right. So with a little bit of that housekeeping done um i think we're about ready to move on to october the 7th um where some people would like us to believe this all began yeah this is the start of history this is the big bang <laughs> yeah ignore everything we've said <laughs> yeah this was i mean it, the the un um secretary general uh the guterres guy it was him saying that like this didn't happen in a vacuum and then there was this from the UN Secretary General. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. That statement itself was railed against as like unspeakably controversial by the Israeli politicians. An attempt to find context for these dark days. Well, it was not what the Israelis wanted to hear. Outside the chamber, surrounded by families of some of the hostages, Israel's foreign minister had just cancelled his meeting with the Secretary-General and the country's ambassador had this. The Secretary-General must resign. This building was, prevent, was, was established to prevent atrocities. How can the Secretary-General, with his words, justify in any way the terrible atrocities that happened to our civilians, innocent civilians. And that was just such a almost metaphysical, like, least strange twist of context, isn't it? Where, like, just the statement that something has context and doesn't entirely lack context is itself, like, you can't entertain it. How dare you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... As is the case with a lot of uh, what we're going to be talking about, it's so overt, the the contradictions and the, well, the, the, the racism, the genocidal intent, I mean, we'll come to all of that, but also just the, the version or the, the lack of history that they want us to sort of follow, that they want us to believe is the case, and how much it like rallies against what we can see to be true. It's so visibly and viscerally wrong isn't it and yeah. yet they're shoving it down our throats and and to some extent that works but i mean that strategy being i guess one that has worked for them to this point and that comes from a position of impunity and this sense that they won't be held to account by anyone and which you know up to this point the us is proving them right with yeah and it relies on like lack of visibility yeah like it's not actively being watched by like masses of people or just people who aren't very educated about it it's very it's a very successful strategy in that case but with this with everything that we're now talking about that's becoming less and less the case for them it's becoming less possible for them to hide behind that as so many people are seeing what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis yeah and this is this is the key to 
a kind of sea change that could take place from here where their very strength can become their very weakness in the sense that when they're using overt lies and mass production of them if that's very visible then that can undermine their case um to the public rather quickly yeah 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 it can very quickly take the legs out from underneath them yeah that's dialectics baby yeah yeah so october 7th A massive surprise attack on Israel by Hamas, the group that controls Gaza, has quickly escalated into the most intense conflict in decades. An unprecedented military operation by Hamas and a colossal failure of Israeli intelligence. You had all these gunmen entering up to 22 different locations outside the Gaza Strip. More than 700 Israelis are now feared dead after unprecedented attacks by Hamas militants. It represents the biggest loss of life in a single day in Israeli history. Hamas, which is designated as a terrorist organization by many Western governments, including the United Kingdom, is still holding out in parts of southern Israel where they're coming under attack by Israeli forces. And Israeli warplanes are now bombing the Gaza Strip, where more than 400 Palestinians are said to have been killed and more than 2,000 injured. Israel responded with a large-scale counteroffensive on militants in Gaza City, and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declaring war, telling his people they will fight to win. Citizens of Israel, we are at war, not in an operation or in rounds, but at war. This morning, Hamas launched a murderous surprise attack against the state of Israel and its citizens. In the meantime, I call on the citizens of Israel to strictly adhere to the directives of the IDF and Home Front Command. We are at war, and we will win it. Joe Biden is vowing to stand by and support Israel, stating that our ally has a right to defend itself. Murdered in cold blood on a sunny Saturday morning, the bodies of some of the victims of the Hamas attack have yet to be removed. The blood splattered cars where they were killed are parked a few feet away. The vehicles pockmarked and broken by the hail of bullets. This was a coordinated attack on the town of Sirot. The road leading to it is lined with vehicles attacked by Hamas as they drove towards the city in this surprise attack. Some escaped on foot, but many were killed or taken hostage and driven to Gaza. The main police station is destroyed, taken over by the gunmen who killed 20 officers. The scale of what happened here is clearly unfathomable for the people of Israel. Nobody ever thought this was remotely possible. In the end, the defense forces destroyed the station. In many ways, it's a symbol of a security system that simply failed. I mean, it's, it feels like, okay, well, let's move on to it. And then immediately it's like, okay, so some context. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's the, the Saudi-Israel relations that were taking place, uh, like Abraham Accords that were happening just as this as October the 7th happened and there's a relevance between them aren't there you you have to speak to that yes so yeah so the, the attack on October the 7th which was called the Al-Aqsa flood by Hamas and other uh, resistance groups right yeah Al-Aqsa flood Al-Aqsa flood battle the operation Al-Aqsa flood yes so yeah there, there were at least two immediately precipitating things the first which was particular incident more was the um invasion of Al-Aqsa by the IDF and the kind of these viral images that came out of the IDF beating the people who were trying to pray in there 
um, and tear gassing them, breaking windows and everything else in Al-Aqsa, which is in uh, East Jerusalem. And then, yeah, the geopolitical context, as you're saying, because that was uh, very important, is that, yeah, the Abraham Accords, which were being kind of overseen by the United States, which were trying to continue this process of normalization between Arab states and Israel, where historically, of course, most of the Arab world has been very hostile to Israel since it was established. And then over time, Western powers have managed to move the, at least the ruling classes of these countries to closer alignment with Israel to back up the Zionist project. We touched on very briefly last time, this has erupted in things uh, that affected it, like the Arab Spring and stuff, where there's widespread among the population at large adversarial attitudes to Israel. But a big, um, the kind of jewel in the crown of this process was to get Saudi Arabia to normalize fully their diplomatic relations with Israel as the most powerful country in the region, the closest ally of the United States in the last few decades, other than Israel, of course. Massive oil power, massive wealth. And so this was actively taking place. There were seeming like to be positive developments from both sides that it was now possible in the immediate future, right before this attack was taking place. So another aim which so far has been successful in at least delaying was to try and stop this process by opening up the question of the palestinians more actively on the world stage and that has now been interrupted and its development is now an open question yeah and so october 7th yes there's a lot to to try and and cover here but there's also a, a sort of a lacking of any official timeline and that in itself being quite stark and something to be very conscious of and and to question yeah. how there hasn't been an official timeline of October the 7th yet. There's been some pretty good, or at least there's been some decent attempts by different outlets to stitch together what's known in some sort of timeline. But what we can sort of say with I was going to say with some confidence, but even this is, is somewhat difficult to be confident about because one side says that they fired 5,000 rockets and the other says uh, that it was 2,500 as far as I can tell. But Hamas says it launched 5,000 rockets in an initial barrage and then it was about an hour later that fighters crossed from Gaza into Israel, both on land, air and sea. There were gliders, weren't there, that went over the, mm. the wall. There was a couple of jeeps that went through, or like, I don't know how many jeeps that went through with fighters on board, and then yeah. kind of boats that went round. Yeah, um, and it was a kind of uh, coalition of resistance groups. Obviously, Hamas is the main one. Then you've got um, PIJ, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, um, and then other smaller groups. But it was a kind of a coalition of those forces had prepared for this day to all attack at once in multiple ways. And there was also the the extra fact that it was reported that Egypt was aware that this was coming and had warned Israel that some large attack was coming and Israel had failed to adequately prepare to defend against it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as a few people that I've sort of been watching as they cover uh, this have said, these events would not have happened if there were tanks lined up against that border wall. What was actually happening was Israel was trialing out some of its new artificial intelligence, like machine guns, and, uh -huh. and had shifted a lot of its troops into places like the West Bank as more of a, like a police force. Mm -hmm. And so they'd sort of left the border in a position that it was much more vulnerable. Yes, that's right. Because there was also the source of more of the activity before this was also, was the, the West Bank and um, there was Israeli excursions into uh, refugee camps in the West Bank and things, wasn't there? Mm. There was rising tensions there. So there was also the domestic context that 
the Israeli attention was focused more on the West Bank at the time. Yeah. So that's really interesting about the AI defenses and automated things. Yeah, exactly. They were sort of, they were using it as the, as we spoke about in our last episode, you know, a test bed for mm. the technology that they then export abroad. You know, there was these machine guns that are supposed to automatically identify targets and fire at them that were you know taken out by Hamas as a part of the operation and it was a heavily prepared for operation like you say you know there was intelligence that it was going to happen beforehand and it was prepared for for a very long time this doesn't just happen overnight and so you know I don't know how conspiratorial it is to suggest that there's an argument that it was in Israel's interests um, to then I mean obviously not justify their actions but in their view be able to then twist it into a justification for what has happened since which you know it, that's exactly what it has become in a, in a terribly sick and twisted way it's being used as a, a 9-11 event isn't it to every every single thing that happens they then say but what about october the 7th yeah and i think that question gets to the heart of what we'll talk about in terms of going into the future because it's very much in the interest of the fraction of the ruling class currently in power in israel the netanyahu like we were talking about but the overall kind of development of history from here would seem to be very much against israel's interest in the region in a similar way that 9-11 acted as a kind of a, a first hit in a larger war that then drew in the u.s empire and has hastened its decline precipitously in the years since yeah that sort of led them to to ultimately invest in unwinnable wars and to i guess financially invest billions into sort of military efforts that they then in many cases just abandoned the equipment and and left and that was very predictable from the beginning for many people with the sort of analysis that we're approaching this from as well wasn't it yeah and so there's already so many places that we could go with where it's now unfolding as we're talking about it because there's the connections to iran that the questions around that are relevant to the shape of a regional war that could escalate there's the fact that the immediate reactions by liberation activists to the al-aqsa flood was that the breaking down of borders the escaping from a concentration camp of these resistance fighters was something to celebrate uncritically and was very an optimistic moment followed by what we'll come on to the events once the resistance fighters were outside and were in israel and then also the barrage that followed like we were talking about the other thing which uh, we're already touching now on areas that we'll have to be careful of what we can and can't include i suppose but from the perspective of national liberation politics the al-aqsa flood was quite groundbreaking in terms of tactics scale and success in a similar way to 9-11 as well but you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> elaborate well as in like 9-11 was hugely successful groundbreaking tactic in anti-imperial violence but obviously was also killed many civilians and was then used as justification for an over reaction which caused like a rolling cycle of violence so yeah the comparisons to 9-11 are kind of quite shallow and can be misused by liberal commentators but again if you take the right things from it it can be uh, a useful analogy and quite informative yeah i mean it's hard to take such horrific events and then sort of flatten them down into a something that one could call predictable or sort of necessary in terms of the unfolding of the natural ramifications of an occupying force subjugating a population. And as we've sort of touched on, but can be very much quantified and sources can be 
presented to back up i mean even i think netanyahu himself was the one that spearheaded the idea that hamas becoming the only means through which palestinians can seek any sort of recourse on the continued displacement and, and the continued Israeli settlements and the conditions that they are living in. You know, he sort of greenlit or looked away from funds being transferred to Hamas in order for the situation to become so fraught and to get to this stage where predictably it explodes into a horrific event that can and was used to massively fast forward the project of displacement yeah they kind of construct each other as enemies and and get more powerful and then that's netanyahu betting on that being a less serious threat to israel than the palestinian authority or more kind of secular civil less radical actors as opposition yeah and i guess what i was trying to sort of get at at the beginning there in response to what you were saying was is is that like to say that it is an event october the 7th or you know 9-11 were events that were a culmination of exported violence and projects of genocidal intent with horrific outcomes that produced extremist elements and which lead to big chapter moments like they were you know and there's no sort of disputing the fact they they changed the momentum and the direction of events in various ways they are just a natural part of the unfolding of history when you look at it like that yeah yeah. However, we're not trying to flatten the reality of what happened. I mean, it's interesting and relevant to mention that the numbers that were published by Israel have since been revised multiple times downwards to almost, I think, half of what they originally were in terms of the fatalities that happened as a result of October the 7th. And alongside that, there are more and more uh, cases, eyewitnesses and simply just sort of stories that are there to be seen told mm. by eyewitnesses of the IDF shooting indiscriminately at Israeli citizens as well as Hamas militants and other militants even to the point that it was only I think yesterday or the day before that I was listening to the fact that you know Apache helicopters were firing at vehicles and even though they'd seen that it was just like white jeeps that had come through the wall they were firing at you know like Peugeots or whatever it might be just normal cars as a part of their reaction to the events so even with easily scrambled intelligence on the day of it happening there was this example of this blanket response that is blind to who they're firing at and and really sort of as much as they speak of how sad they are that the Israeli citizens were killed that day we have no idea how many were killed by who yeah, this is like the a, such a critical unfolding events to understand, but such a difficult one to pass because it was the main source, as we were saying, of the sudden bombardment in the media of Israeli propaganda and claims, a lot of which have been walked back, like mass rape, beheadings of babies, things like that. Part of the source of the overcount for the number of civilians killed by Hamas and other actors was that there was people who were so badly burnt they couldn't identify them and then when they did they realized they were resistance fighters that they'd included in a count so as you say that's been revised down multiple times the lowest one i've seen is like in the 800s or something i i yeah i seem to have in my notes like down to, towards 600s but i yeah i mean who knows yeah the specifics are, are impossible to tell right now basically yeah oh yeah so the reaction from israel once the security state realized what was happening because as we said, it was distracted and underprepared. It seems to have then been an overreaction that was too wide. 
uh, even in the kibbutzes, there was evidence that tanks had fired on the houses yeah. because there was, dam- there was damage, which they were showing off as the damage caused by these resistance fighters. But those resistance, resistance fighters weren't armed with anything that could cause that kind of damage. Yeah. And then it's also important to disambiguate that most of the targets hit by the res- resistance fighters were military. And among the numbers in that count, they weren't disclosing who were military targets as well who under international law are seen as fair targets for groups that are occupied to attack. And then I think originally it was claimed however many children were killed. I think it's now down to one child, maybe. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, I think it's one child. Yeah. Even though Joe Biden was like justifying the response by saying he'd seen yeah. like horrific images of babies being killed and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then like the footage from October the 7th that was shown to journalists was shown in private screenings to selected journalists and it wouldn't be publicly put out so it could be verified. And then that was like an edited together compilation of presumably, I mean, they're incentivized to create the impression of the worst possible atrocities with the least possible justification. What that then allowed is journalists could come out and say like, I've seen things that would, you know, you'd never sleep again. They're hellish, but you don't actually have to publish it. But you can still get the journalistic kind of support as a result. Yeah. Oh yeah, and... Um, I think one of the first targets, which makes sense now when you were saying with this artificial intelligence setup, one of the first targets for the resistance fighters was they they beelined to the kind of control center for a lot of the kind of technologies of surveillance and uh, defense. They took that out very quickly and the people who were manning it. And so that scrambled. It it, uh, it had gone dark. The area had gone dark compared to the control that Israel is used to having over the area. So that also meant that I think the reaction by the Israeli forces was like hours later or something. Yeah, well, I I think there were people who'd gone into their sort of safe houses or their their sort of bunkers or whatever it is, and they were there sort of the next morning and the army still hadn't turned up. Mm. So um, they sort of went and hid and there was no... I mean, as is the case with Israel's approach to all of this, where they take a completely... Like, they, they didn't... I mean, the ground invasion didn't take place until they'd indiscriminately bombed for weeks and weeks and weeks Mm. and that same approach really was their approach to october the 7th where they didn't send any forces in they they fired from a distance yeah and that's that's another thing worth noting with the context of israeli military operations they've been very successful backed with lots of funding and um weapons from the west um in their history but the idf whenever they've gone in on the ground it hasn't gone as well because they're used to um, aerial bombardments and things of that nature. Yeah. Whereas when fighting guerrilla forces on the ground, as similarly the United States found out in Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam. Yeah, you're in their territory. Yeah. Um, and so we could, uh, maybe it's more relevant later, but like touching on the concept of like a paper tiger in Maoist terms. Yeah. That was just that like uh, Mao, the chairman of the communist party for a long time in china after the revolution referred to united states and imperial forces as a paper tiger in that they look huge and ferocious but they're as thin as paper once serious liberation efforts are made against it Mm. so with the historical decline of the united states empire you can see that the last few wars that they've entered they've lost all of them pretty much Uh, yeah i don't think they've won a single one no there's like there's ones like korea has kind of ended in an indefinite um it's not ended well still exactly. going. yeah it hasn't ended <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's an indefinite like pause and yeah they've backed wars that also haven't succeeded like in yemen 
with the Saudi bombardment, which is also part of the context that we'll get to. Yeah. Whereas Israel, as a young nation, has won a number of wars, but the times that they were most challenged is when they did try to go in on the ground. So that's relevant for what comes as well. Yeah. It's really difficult to not just scatter bomb into everything, isn't it? Now? I know. That's what Israel said. <laughs> Don't know whether or not I should laugh at that. <laughs> so is there anything else on October the 7th that we feel like that day this happened, we need to talk about? Because if not, then I think it would be good to close that in a way that means we can talk about the other stuff differently. Yeah, I agree. Let's just think very quickly. Um, yeah, with the music festival, it was just that um, that was the site of most of the claims of kind of mass civilian death and was the source of many of the hostages that were taken back into Gaza as well, I think or at least the non-military hostages. And I think that was where the like the parachuting people who came in over the fence had killed some civilians. Yeah. The evidence seems to be that the resistance fighters weren't aware that there was a music festival on that day. And so it wasn't a planned target, but was something that happened in the kind of rolling events since they broke out. But in the imagination of the press, that's become the kind of inciting incident where it's like a, on the one hand, a liberal kind of music festival carefree civilian crowd and then kind of terrorist militants coming in to kill them right in this in a similar way to the 9-11 you know they hate our freedom that kind of narrative can be peddled off the back of those events certainly i mean it's almost impossible that no civilians were killed by resistance targets yeah that is a war crime in international law yeah and we can come on to talking about international law in general but yeah we should just set that out briefly maybe yeah yeah i think um what was i gonna say well, I think one of the like, reputable outlets I was listening to something uh, on the other day was talking about how, and I don't know who, that's the only thing about reporting. I mean, we've we've left it, you know, a little while to be able to try and do our best to put together a bit of a an overview of all of this. But there's obviously, as we were saying, with the timeline of October the 7th, that as is the case kind of with a lot of it, a little bit hazy on some of the specifics. But there was, I think it was a, a Hamas representative that was, was, I mean, one thing we could say with certainty is that Hamas were willing to exchange hostages from basically day one, weren't they? I mean, one of the things that they were very well aware of is, as can be evidenced in history for them, is that the value exchange that Israel sees between, or at least they that they thought Israel um, <laughs> applied to Israeli hostages held by Hamas versus Palestinian hostages held by Israel is that mm. in the past they've exchanged sort of one person for like a thousand Palestinian prisoners and I think like one of those exchanges in the thousand that were released became one of the you know leaders of Hamas in Gaza you know these exchanges are, are valuable to Hamas and they saw that as being a, a chip that they would be able to use I think that you could say a couple of things about that as you say you know it's a, a war crime to kill civilians and mm. is it a, it's a war crime to take them hostage I don't know if it's, I mean it's definitely against international law yeah the intentions that seem to have been the case are that they were hoping to take military hostages and that, you know, in the fog of the unfolding of the events, they grabbed pretty much anyone and got them back into Gaza and then could do their checks. It was pretty much the next day that they were then willing to do hostage exchanges. And it's not something that's 
possible when you're being pummeled by bombs and there's no safe routes, especially not when, as you sort of said, mm. they are sort of different factions that have formed a coalition and that different hostages were held in different places and that with communications being difficult, you know, it takes a bit of time to get them together and transport them and under and under barrage yeah yeah um because as you as you were saying like the the tactical explanation for it is of course that the israeli state like you said the value israeli citizens like thousands of times more than palestinians and that can be used against them in terms of asymmetrical trading but also in terms of holding hostages in the territory that is then going to be attacked because it the only thing is that it didn't seem to turn out that way yeah but it increases pressure on netanyahu's regime i suppose but for yeah. for that cut yeah for them themselves it hasn't made much difference yeah exactly exactly but i think it is really important to sort of stress the point that the hostage trades because it's being used as i mean it was even today that i watched that clip that you sent me of suella braverman the former uh, home secretary at uh, the protest for israel like solidarity and talking about how important it is that they get the hostages out former home secretary suella bravman was also in the crowd and joined in a 100 second silence we need to stand with israel continually throughout this bitter and cruel and evil conflict and that that has been the line that's been towed by western powers since the beginning in western mm. media and there's obviously no appetite to do that if yeah. you're continuing to drop thousands of bombs and i mean we've sort of somewhat moved into talking about the hostages haven't we should we handle that subject sort of in its entirety while we're here yeah and yeah that's a good point that in the outside western world having troops on the ground within gaza can be somewhat justified by the claim that they're trying to rescue hostages and like i think it was also in a letter by biden very very recently as one of the main aims yeah well i mean there's some of the international reaction like the celebrities signing on to a letter it's a huge part of the messaging around sort of the the validity of israel's actions um since october the 7th and yet when you look at it in terms of like the reality they obviously don't want to get the israeli hostages back and there's lots of reasons why that's the case i mean one is that when they finally did have a sort of so-called cessation of hostilities and they were able to do some hostage trades the women that were released were in different ways you know with different sort of views on their captors were talking of the fact that they weren't terribly treated there were claims by some of rape but only such a horrible way to sort of follow up that but what i was going to say is but only sort of secondhand witnessing of it in terms of there's no person that claims to have experienced that treatment themselves and who is willing to actually speak on the subject. Yeah, there, there was a whole um, segment put out. I can't remember which press outlet it was, but it was an interview with one of the hostages who was released, um, an Israeli woman, who at the time she was released was saying that they were treated well. And then a couple of months later came out with an explosive interview the main emotional claim of which was that she wasn't raped, but she felt like she would have been if the person's wife wasn't there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these claims being conjecture about like what would have happened that didn't happen. Yeah, and it was also like a child didn't give her sweets or something, like she gave other people sweets. Yeah, there was a story of a child uh, offering a sweet and then taking it <laughs> away. You know, you can imagine any child doing it. And the lady came away from that 
with the story that the child had raped her with his eyes. Yeah. But it's important to say that in these horrific exchanges that rape is a reality of war that is a horrific crime and that, you know, we're not saying hasn't happened and any cases of it is is horrific to imagine. But it's just to sort of say that the fact that it's so difficult to talk about is exactly why it's used as a tool to justify outsized reactions and responses yeah because because yeah there's both sides in in contradiction the side that it is a a reality of war and the other side being that claims of mass rape is also one of the first like propaganda weapons of war and in this context um the kind of colonial history of non-white people raping specifically white women has been like a rhetorical trope i saw it said like i don't know because obviously we don't know the specifics like the, we can't substantiate the accuracy but someone was saying that if you think that resistance fighters in israel for like the hours that they'd escaped their concentration camp were raping whilst they were like being targeted by one of the most powerful military forces then that kind of a lot of that will be motivated by racial tropes brown men raping white women so all of that is in play and the same thing is of um, killing children and especially beheading babies is almost like the worst because uh, a similar uh where was it i think it was iraq or afghanistan there was claims of like the uh, resistance were taking babies out of incubators and and things like this so, so it's, a, it's a maelstrom well yeah yeah i mean we'll come back to that because there's very real evidence of that happening to children in gazan hospitals yeah. as they run out of power and we'll come to that yeah because that's another dynamic that people are calling out in terms of every accusation is a confession where a lot of the time the accusations that are made you can't find evidence for but you can find evidence for israel having perpetrated something very similar to that in the past yeah so i guess something that i've got in my notes that i just want to kind of add to what i've already said is is that you know everybody wants to know what actually happened you know like we, we we're saying we would like to know exactly what did happen and assessments have to be done to establish that um but to suggest that it's bad to ask for proof yeah is ridiculous i mean that's the stance that israel is taking to any accusation or any question that's raised by for example the media and and their representatives in the media are sort of saying like basically how dare you ask for proof but we're saying that actual assessments need to take place into what took place yeah it's like when, when your enemies are context and evidence it's a bad sign so we should carry on the conversation about hostages we may well um sort of loop back to october 7th but we've probably covered the headlines that we planned to speak about there didn't we yeah so, so after that it was immediately followed by a huge barrage on gaza from the air by israel the hostages were taken into tunnels and the fighting on the ground didn't start until a bit later yeah but i can't remember if i finished that point on reasons that israel obviously wouldn't want or doesn't seem to want to get their hostages back because that is the continued experience we're now on the 15th of january 24 and the reasons that Israel obviously don't have an appetite to to get the, their hostages back, I mean, the ones that were released, obviously we've spoken about some of the things that they said, but they also spoke to this repeated shelling that they were confident they wouldn't survive. All of them have come out saying that they are completely traumatised by the bombing that was happening around them and the fact that they thought they wouldn't get out. And obviously the experience of being violently 
taken hostage in a situation where it's happening at light speed and shelling is coming at you in itself is massively traumatic experience but they do speak of eating the same food as their captors Mm. and everything as well and these aren't the sorts of messages that israel wants to be coming out yeah there was a uh infamous like kind of fist bump moment as well with an old woman yeah i think she said like peace in arabic yeah 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 and during that release that was when isma ben gavir who we've already talked about as being previously declined from the idf for being a terrorist he was the one who implemented the policy of expressions of joy will be classed as showing support for terrorism during that trade. And when the Palestinians were being released and able to go back to their families, you know, it had to sort of happen behind closed doors. Mm. Like they'd come in and you'd see this like footage of people being like so excited to see their family, but like, oh, close the door, close the door. You know, like as in we can't let them see that we're happy about this and things. Yeah. It's absolutely horrific. I think this is a direct quote from Itamar Ben-Gavir. So it's, yeah, expressions of joy are a support for terrorism terrorism and celebrations of victory give strength to those same human scum and nazis that was um the quote from uh that that period of exchange yeah, israel also killed some of the hostages yeah who were waving white flags and they just sort of shot them down didn't they yeah and so it was speculated whether that was an incident of the hannibal doctrine which is i think a policy that israel used in previous conflicts where hostages were too valuable to the opposition as collateral so they would kill them if they could to remove the um negotiating stake um but it's kind of like whether it was purpose or accidental both are equally bad in a way because it if it was accidental it was that they thought they were palestinians and if that's the case then they were indiscriminately killing you know they thought they were killing palestinians who didn't pose a threat but really they were killing israelis who didn't pose a threat so it's either a terminal mistake or a purposeful crime yeah so i guess on the flip side of this is the hostages or as they are called in western media the prisoners that israel has taken so we've got the the hostages that um hamas has taken and supposedly the prisoners that israel has taken Mm. but the hostages as i'm going to call them that have been captured by israel who i don't know if we spoke about it in the first episode but you know are trialed on the military tribunal rather than in a civil court And so, yeah, so the detention that they have to endure is sort of horrible conditions. And they're convicted of a crime over 99% of the time for things like throwing a stone and being put in prison for up to 20 years for something like that. Mm. These children being subjected to strip searching. And a report by Save the Children said that between 500 and 1,000 children are currently held in Israeli detention. So to think of those conditions and to consider that more acceptable prison-type situation is holding double standards as well. Yeah, and the treatment of Palestinians within Israeli prisons. I mean, there there's been reported rapes, but there's been reported torture, there's been reported isolation, starvation. The Palestinian prisoners that came back into Gaza were in terrible condition. Yeah, yeah, there's um, th- yeah, there's a story of a 13-year-old boy being raped in an Israeli prison, which led to them like confiscating their PCs and calling them a terrorist organization or something. And I mean, once you get past the barbarism of the idea that I think I've taken this from a tweet, but when you get once you get past the the barbarism of the rape, and you think about why was a thirteen year old boy being held in prison? Yeah, it's like you almost sort of to pass some of these facts, you can only process like the last bit, and you forget how crazy even the foundations of that are. Yeah, 
because then you go back another step and like why is there a prison on occupied land that is imprisoning citizens of the of that land <laughs> you keep going steps back yeah 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 and i mean another thing that israel uses as a, a weapon against the palestinian people is the psychological torture that they are able to apply through things like if a palestinian dies in prison they're not given back to the family so that they can be buried they're kept in refrigerators until the end of their sentences oh wow so it's just like they use everything at their disposal to subjugate the palestinian people yeah and also harvesting organs from dead palestinians yeah and also They've got this really strange, I mean, what do you know much about this? Like the semen recovery? Oh, yeah. Isn't that that like the IDF have a unit that will retrieve semen from soldiers that have been killed or are about yeah. to die in, in the battlefield? Yeah, there's, it's, it's called like post-homus semen extraction. And they're, they're sort of framing it as right. uh, this campaign wow. to like bring back our children. So there's like, I've seen ad campaigns that they run to sort of say, you know, we're doing this to like bring back our children. She thinks it's just another rocket attack, but a gripping fear prickles through Shiley's entire body and it's outside their bedroom window. Her husband, Yahav, fights the danger as Shiley runs, leaving everything behind to protect their baby, Shia. She hides from the terrorist hunting her. For 27 hours, terrified, praying that the love of her life will survive. She clings to hope that she won't need to raise their newborn alone. Four days later, her heart shatters. She hugs Shia tightly and knows she must fulfill Yahav's dream to create more life. So, Shiley puts out a call for the unthinkable, to retrieve his seed and be able to continue growing their family. She's in her own war against time, and the crowd leaps into action to complete her desperate mission. But it's too late. Shiley did everything she could to save her family. We still have time to save ours. Bring our children back now. Yeah, it's very strange. It became a kind of meme online for a while. Yeah, it's all it's this bloodline stuff that it, that's that's fueling it. Yeah, I was going to say that that's a good segue into kind of the eugenicist side of settler colonialism where there is a kind of morbid logic because we're talking about how many children have been killed in a kind of like it's usually framed as like a surplus death that they just don't care about kind of thing but there is an angle to which Palestinian children are a direct threat to Israel as it defines itself because demographically obviously Gaza is very young and when you're creating a kind of live settler colonial project then like young generations of the people you're trying to displace are seen as like a weapon that will kind of overcome you and your majoritarian Jewish population. So babies and young people, and then as we see here, like the sperm of deceased officers even become kind of tools in that project. Yeah, it's very similar to the seeds of conspiracies like the white replacement conspiracy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Where you see this like threat of a changing demographic as being a conspiracy to replace well in that case the white Aryan race yeah yeah that's uh relevant to like the larger context of with climate change with kind of hundreds of millions of climate refugees and western states becoming increasingly 
militarized borders and elements of eco-fascism coming in then people can see the struggle in gaza as reflecting the kind of violence that could become widespread when western nations are defending their borders as they see it against lots of people of different demographics who have been displaced by climate disasters so this is like a potential harbinger for like the bad route basically that humanity could take over the next few decades and that's another angle to which the chance of kind of in our thousands in our millions we are all palestinians a direct way that a lot of the world especially the global south sees themselves in the struggle in gaza and the and the racist right-wing elements see themselves in the struggle on the side of israel yeah and as i i heard um at the protest on saturday there's an extension to the in our thousands, in our millions, we are all Palestinians, which is in our millions, in our billions, we are all Palestinians is the second verse. That's cool. Yeah, yeah and, and the size comparison between the Israeli one and the Palestinian one was also interesting, wasn't it? Because the Israeli one that you mentioned took place in Trafalgar Square that Suella Braveman was at. And from the images, I don't think they really even filled Trafalgar Square. And do you know what the report is? The reporting on the Palestinian one, between 300 and 500,000 maybe? Yeah, um, it seems to be like up to, but also potentially over 500,000. Yeah. Yeah. So there was was scales of magnitude of difference there. Yeah. There was um, a, I'm trying to think of the outlet. Was it Sky News? Or I think it might have been Sky News that like yesterday was uh, reporting on 15 or like 12,000 or 15,000. Like it had the number in in the headline. It was like 15,000 protest or like organized protest for Israel. But in their coverage of the protest from Saturday, where, yeah, about 500,000 protested, they just say thousands protest. And on many of the mainstream propaganda like on the ma- I'm sorry on many of the mainstream that's just the word that follows mainstream <laughs> to me now the, on many yeah. of the mainstream news outlets uh they either didn't cover it or like you have to search to find it and i couldn't find a single article on the bbc about it so it's it's kind of crazy you know i think it was similar in the united states as well there was at least four hundred thousand marching in washington in which i think is yeah. like one of the biggest at least of that kind in recent history and it also wasn't reported barely at all is the biggest march for palestine in america yeah history yeah yeah wow yeah. yeah so on the subject of propaganda where do we go i've got like headlines yeah well actually i've interestingly got a picture of keir starmer having glitter thrown over him <laughs> on october the 11th on the daily express front page with huge words across the front page horror at pure evil beheading of babies. So just in terms of the stuff that we were talking about. And then um, actually even more like specific, the Metro front page of October the 11th was 40 babies murdered by Hamas. So it was 40 babies at that point that they were saying. And then sort of poignantly, and as you were sort of saying, like pointing the finger, meaning look at the pointing finger, Daily Mail uh, quotes, uh, this was a Holocaust pure and simple. Mm. Uh, the Times said Hamas cut the throats of babies in massacre. Mm. So just a few examples of the British newspapers and their response on the 11th of October. But it's sort of, I guess, one of the things that's in, like interesting here is is that, you know, if a fact, you know, in quotes, as the media doesn't really report on those, but um, if a fact is going to benefit Israel, if it's sort of Zionist commentary, then it doesn't seem to go through much of a, an editing process. It reaches unfiltered through most of the, the, the main outlets. But if it's going to benefit 
I guess, Hamas, but also just the Palestinian perspective generally. And those are obviously very separate things while being conflated all the time. It goes through layers of editors to the extent that it doesn't reach the piece in any way near the same substance as uh, pro-Zionist commentary. And you can see that just in day-to-day when you read the news. The tone is so apparent that I mean, it just screams out to me now. Yeah. But I don't know to what extent it does for everyone. It's just so obvious now, though. Yeah. Well, the re- I think a lot of it, in retrospect, was learned from Iraq and Afghanistan with the UK press because any news that kind of furthers the line of the security apparatus, like British security, will get put into mainstream media outlets. And the most they qualify it with were like senior source claims or something like that. And they'll be very uncritical of directly transferring British security state talking points to the public. And hopefully some of the right lessons have been learned post Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think this is also heightening some of those observations among like the population at large, uh, where the narrative is becoming more questioned. But yeah, there's obviously a lot of work that can be done there. And hopefully we're doing a tiny bit of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because all those headlines from October the 11th, the IDF wouldn't even confirm at the time. Yeah, you know, yeah. But are being peddled by the press. So it's, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, alongside all of that, there's there's um, Israel's approach to foreign press, to Western media. And I mean, I guess something that, as I say, that comes to mind is how when they've given evacuation orders, they've done it in English, mm. online which is both inaccessible and not in the native language of those that they're warning, Mm. which is obviously intended to give the impression to Western citizens that warnings are being given, but in itself sort of shows that they're not. And another example of that is the fact that the flyers that they dropped to warn people to evacuate had QR codes on that nobody could scan because they don't have access to the infrastructure in order to make use of that warning. Yeah, yeah. It's like humanitarian theatre for an international audience. Yeah, the humanitarian theatre is, yeah, a really good way of putting what, what they've been doing. I mean, people that come to mind when we talk about this are Mark Regev, who's the senior advisor to Benjamin Netanyahu and who, to me, has just become the face of evil. Like He does all these different interviews where he... Which strikes was it? It was in Iran, wasn't it? The strikes that ISIS ultimately took responsibility yeah. for. I mean, one of the more comical was the one where he... Oh, no, no, no. I think he was talking about the strike in um, Lebanon. Oh, shit. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it was one where they, they hit the well, senior position, <laughs> the senior guy from yeah. Mass. You're right. Beirut. Yeah. It was like, you know, we're fighting. I mean, uh, whoever's uh, doing this. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> Don't you expect that a strike in downtown Beirut might have might lead to a Hezbollah response and open that northern front, which, of course... Israel and the United States have been very concerned against a second front opening to the north. So I think it's obvious. Obviously, in Lebanon, there are many Hezbollah targets, but whoever did this strike was very surgical and went for a Hamas target because Israel is at war. Uh, 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 whoever did this uh, has, a, has a gripe with Hamas. Uh, 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 it's Once again, whoever did this, it's not an attack on the Lebanese state, it's not an attack on the Hezbollah terrorist organization. Whoever did this, it's an attack on Hamas. That's very clear. 
so yeah, there's there's him and then there's Tippi Hotavelli, who's the ambassador mm. of Israel to the United Kingdom. So she's one that we've sort of probably become quite familiar with over the time. And she's one who sort of says, well, even a week ago or so for us at this point, she was saying things like, you know, every school, every mosque, every second house has access to tunnels. Yeah. And uh, she was sort of saying, what do you expect us to do? Yeah, the uh, LBC host was saying, but that's an argument for... Uh, obliterating the whole of gaza and they said what other option do we have or something like that yeah yeah she also when they were interviewing her about the two-state solution and she was like why are you obsessed with this old model which doesn't work and they were like but but because they they still think that that's what israel wants the two-state solutions so they're like kind of surprised saying but what how will there be a palestinian state then and she's just like shying it down like no we can't do that and it won't happen and then that became a big furore so people are saying that like her radicalism is kind of undermining the israeli case because it's a less professional kind of presentation of trying to seem like you're still on board with this process which is long dead Mm. she Mm. she also was being counter-protested a couple of years ago and like keir starmer was saying this is outrageous these people who are protesting like an israeli ambassador and even before that she's been quoted in speeches and stuff like saying like there will be no Palestinian state and all of it will be Israel and everything else so she's like a Zionist extremist kind of Israel expansionist everything else yeah I mean it's hard not to flit around with this sort of subject but another instance of this overt propaganda Mm. and sort of these lies that are being um forced on us was those clips of the hostages there were there were lots of men including a journalist yeah that were all kneeling on the floor and had been pretty much stripped and then the next day we saw like this footage that they'd released of them supposedly being sort of told to hand over their weapons and there was like two clips that were released and it was holding the rifle in a different hand in each clip yeah Yeah. that'd be like anti-terrorist theater or something again like it's for consumption outside of israel because oh yeah another really interesting dynamic to it is that the the reason that the narrative israel's narrative is also being undermined so much at the moment is they're caught between a rock and a hard place with their messaging because their domestic audience wants to see revenge essentially so they want like you know direct comeuppance to the people which they kind of smear most of the population as being involved in directly but the international audience wants them to seem like they're being careful precise proportionate and so you get when those two things flip over then it either makes the domestic audience think they're not going hard enough or it makes their international audience they're kind of astounded by how extreme their messaging is so that's part of this bifurcation of the messaging yeah, so it's an, sort of inherently difficult um, line for them to pedal, but also one that they're really botching, like they're really doing a poor job at stuff. That like It's almost like there's low effort that's going into it. It's like they can just know they can yeah. do it. I mean, they've been doing it for so long and their like, lobbying is so sort of deeply rooted in our like Western systems now, especially in like the, the UK and the US. And they sort of have this complacency about them yeah. that feels like it's led to so many botched approaches on and all these things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely hubristic uh, in the sense that I think that's part of this overall narrative that the because the expansion and the defense of the Israeli state was the kind of default de facto position that was just seemingly going to continue unending, uninterrupted, they had a sense of security, unshakable victory. And then this kind of, since the Al-Aqsa flood, that has been disrupted. So the population have become increasingly anxious, which can make them increasingly radical. And the international situation, both pro and against the existence of Israel, 
the existential questions have been reopened in terms of it isn't this this thing that can never be defeated in any way it's not this thing that's a foregone conclusion and so they've gone from everyone praising them for being kind of unbeatable in all these different areas to realizing that a lot of the stuff because they were so secure has actually just been like hubris and then when it comes in contact with a different reality different political reality then it can be exposed on a lot of levels yeah so yeah this this sort of strategy that they've used throughout is one that Zionists sort of used since the late 1800s really and as far as developing the support that they required to continue their project and early on they were openly calling it propaganda but it developed over time and the technique is called Hasbara now yeah yeah, it was formally introduced into the Zionist vocabulary by someone called Nahum Sokolo. Um, probably won't put that in. Uh, but what I was going to say is, yeah, so it was... Um, it's a pre-Israeli tactic. Right. And it roughly means explaining, but it sort of, quote, is a communication strategy that seeks to explain actions, whether or not they are justified. And so is exactly what we were speaking about, really. Isn't yes. It? But yeah, I mean, one of the things that this article on Wikipedia that I'm reading about the Hasbara technique is they're just sort of saying that today, Israeli practitioners tend to label their communicative efforts as public diplomacy and not Hasbara, um, in- indicating a shift in strategy. But I mean, yeah, no, just a shift in name. <laughs> Well, I guess related to the subject of propaganda is, as I briefly mentioned just then, the lobbying that Israel performs, especially in the UK and the US around yeah, the Israel lobby and their involvement in, I mean, some very significant events in the Labour Party here and also in the US when it comes to lobbying Congress and, and their involvement in selecting candidates for both parties that if you don't have the Israel lobby on your side, then they're likely to find an alternative to you. And the techniques that they use are, are so diverse, but you know, there's things like, because they're not able to anymore, I mean, they used to be able to more directly bribe and there's some different laws it varies obviously in in country to country but one of the techniques that comes to mind is how they have these like resorts in israel that they will fly a representative from whichever parliament or um, congress or whatever into the resort and then it's like all paid for and while they're there they sort of are like wooed so is a technique that's being used. I mean, it was only, I think, yesterday that you sent me this pic, the picture of the uh, Labour Party MPs sort of over in Israel um, expressing mm. solidarity as well, didn't you? Yeah, Labour Friends of Israel are a very prominent um, grouping within Labour Party, especially at the moment in the Shelley Cabinet and Jewish Voice for Labour, a Zionist group within Labour, APAC in the United States, mm. funds a lot of um, races and things. Yeah, huge. And Jewish Chronicle is a zionist publication that can do hit pieces on politicians that step out of line and things yeah i I linked both al jazeera documentaries um in episode one but also also didn't reference them in the episode itself and so i'll do it again as as was the case with the march for turn Mm. and gaza fights for freedom documentary that we mentioned at the beginning of the episode and those are really really interesting uh to watch because al jazeera who has their own biases and you know it, you sort of have to understand their their positioning and their framing and their qatari owned and whatnot but on the subject of palestine has done some of the better coverage over this ongoing holocaust and so looking at their previous works you can find some very interesting pieces uh, they did some stuff on the oslo accords and various other things but the documentary on the labor files and what was revealed about what happened during corbyn's reign and how the israel lobby played a significant role in 
casting him as an anti-Semite um, because of his views on Israel and also the way that they manipulated. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of compact into a, a quick overview, but it's very interesting. They do undercover sort of reporting and reveal lots of the secrets from inside the organisations that actively interfere in UK politics. And they do the same for America and, and cover the APAC sort of lobby and whatnot there. And that was actually sort of taken down off of YouTube, or at least Al Jazeera can't display that anymore. And I'm not quite sure the story there. But luckily, the Electronic Intifada, who do amazing coverage on Palestine, are able to host that instead. So I'll put all those links in the description. But they're really revealing around the subject of Israel's lobbying campaign. Mm. That was another dynamic. People were explaining how Cotavelli as being such a kind of poor communicator for Israel. Apparently, the previous one was much more kind of professional. And people were saying that that's partly a result of the lack of pressure, because at the time, like the opposition were like pro-Palestinian. And now kind of both major parties have been captured by Zionist politicians. And so like it doesn't matter as much because there isn't really a political alternative that's viable uh, in the immediate future uh, in an organised capacity within Parliament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to the second episode of our coverage of the continuing genocide against the Palestinian people. We'll be back with a third part that covers Israel's war crimes, as well as an initial look at the widening war very soon. And so if you are interested in helping us continue to make these episodes and our videos that you can find on our website, along with details on how to support us, then please do head over there. Um, it's themoleworld.com. And in the meantime... You bring the cheese. I'll bring the crackers.